come here this morning to worship you. Worship, putting everything else beneath what we give to you. In our mind, in our heart, in our actions, God, we worship you. Your name above all names. God, help us. Sometimes we, uh, we get our priorities wrong. We get, we get distracted. We, um, we put other things in that spot. But God, this morning we want to be realigned with that truth, that, that you are first and foremost. We want to tell you that, and we want to learn more about it. God, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming. Grab a seat. <clears throat> glad you're here. Welcome to Trinity. If you're a guest, so glad you're here with us this morning. Thanks for visiting Father's Day. Glad that you're here. And, and just, uh, you know, out of all the things that you could be doing right now, you're here together. And that's one of the things, you know, I keep thinking about. Pastor Brad likes to quote Pastor Andy Stanley, who says, uh, one of the best investments that you can make outside of your family is the church. And I love that statement because it says a couple of things. It says the best investment that you can make is your family. And then outside of that is the local church. So thanks for being involved. Thanks for coming, participating in your presence, in your, in your prayers, in your action, just being involved. It's good to be together. It's good to worship God, not just alone, but together as a community. So thanks for coming this morning. So glad you're here. Hey, pull out your worship folder as you came this morning. Somebody shook your hand, probably said hello, and put one of those beautiful little worship folders in your hand. We're going to talk about a couple of things that are, that are coming up. First of all, if you open that up, there's going to be a blue card in there. We call that our connection card. And the connection card is just a really easy way for us to get to know you, especially if you're new here. Uh, we want to get to know you. So if you feel comfortable, later on in the service, we're going to give you an opportunity to fill that out because we really think relationship is so important. And I know it seems funny, like, how can I have a relationship if I put my name on this card? But it's just the base level. It's the easiest way. If you want, there's some people out here at the Welcome Center just outside these doors, some people who would love to meet you, talk to you, tell you more about Trinity. And so thanks for coming. You regular people, you regular people. We're, we're, you regular attenders, uh, we know we're not regular, but anyway, hey, thanks for coming, and uh, let me point out a couple of things. Summer at Trinity, we know the school's out, we got all sorts of stuff coming up. We've got volleyball in the park every Thursday night, something I love to do, something I encourage people, whatever your gifts and talents and passions are, do that and bring people alongside, so that's something I've done all throughout my ministry. I love to play volleyball and just bring people along, have fun. Uh, last week, there was, a good, there was a good showing. People showed up. They brought their dinner. Some people were just sitting on the side and talking. Some people were playing. All levels of play every Thursday night. We'd love to have you come out and play with us right over here in Titan Park. Okay? Uh, if you missed, how many of you in here were at the drive-in movie night? All right. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for coming. Sorry that it wasn't actually drive-in because we couldn't get your car inside the church because it was raining. But uh, next time we'll work on the, the actual drive-in part. But that was a lot of fun. We're going to do that throughout the summer, different times, so stay tuned. We would love for you to come participate in that. On uh, the 30th, we're going to have game night over in the park. We're going to pull out a lot of our games, a lot of fun things that we can do out in the park. We would love you to come. But here's the thing. We've been saying all throughout the summer, it's not, it's not just looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And that is, so come and do the things that you want to be a part of, but bring, bring somebody alongside you, Right? Somebody that you want to spend time with, bring them along and, and have fun with them and use it as an opportunity to develop and continue relationship. So that's going to be on the 30th. Hey, if you didn't know, uh, spoiler alert, today's Father's Day. 
some people are like, oh, man. All right, so think about what you're supposed to do for dad, as you know, as this goes on. But it's Father's Day, and so we've got a little video here we'd like to highlight Father's Day. That's fun. Perfect. Hey, we want to take a minute and just honor dad. So if you are a dad, uh, would you please stand up if you feel comfortable. If you don't, if you don't feel comfortable, that's fine. But we want, to, we want to say thank you, dads, and we want to take a minute and pray for them. So if you are close to one of these people, uh, just, just reach out, put your hand on them. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for being our father and for showing us how to be good dads. God, I pray that you'd continue to lead us in that way and how to be good dads, how to run after you with everything that we have. God, how to lead our families. God, how to do those things, to, to carry the weight, to, to be the people that you've designed us to be. And God, we know that you use these people, these, these particular specially designed people to lead in a unique way. And God, we want to be those instruments. So God, as you teach us how to be good dads, I pray that you'd continue to give us the strength and the wisdom to fulfill the role that you've given to us. God, I thank you for those dads who are here, who are leading themselves and their families. God, help us all to continue to run after you. We love you. We thank you. And everybody said, amen. Grab a seat. So I think my favorite part of that video is he's washing the dishes as he's saying all those things. I mean, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. 
Well, hey, good morning. Glad to be with you. Uh, glad I get to spend Father's Day with you, really, doing the thing that God's called me to do, and uh, really privileged uh, to do that. If you've been here over the past few weeks, you know we're studying uh, the book of Esther in the middle of the series on Esther, and what a great story the book of Esther is. It's a dramatic story, it's exciting, and uh, we get to a really exciting part of the story this morning, this climactic moment. And you'll remember we've called this series Faith in Blank, and uh, the, the subtitle is Following God When You Can't See Him. Each week we've been filling that blank in with something that we can put our trust in, something that, that's bigger and better and more reliable than us, than our own interests and, uh, and abilities. And so the first week we talked about putting our faith in God's process and not in our position, that whatever status or position we have, it could change. It's change in a moment. Circumstances can change, but, but God's process can be trusted. And last week, if you were here, we talked about putting our faith in God's placement and not just in our performance, that God has us where he wants us. And, and uh, God's love and his ability to use us is not dependent upon our obedience, how we perform. And so this week, we're going to continue our study of Esther. And as I said, we're going to get to the climax of the story. That's going to be exciting. And, and these people in the story, they don't know what comes next. And you may or may not know what comes next, but you can know that whatever we're going to put our faith in, it's going to start with the letter P. So there you go. Hey, I, uh, I love my house. Uh, it's a good house for us, but uh, it's a little bit of an older house. And it's not older like so many houses around town that are just oozing with uh, craftsman charm. It's, it's just uh, an old house, you know, uh, from the 1950s. And so, like, uh, if you're a person, being from the 1950s, not that big of a deal. If you're a hot rod, it's pretty cool. But if you're a house... It's just okay because it's kind of like the time when things start to maybe fall apart and wear out and create problems, but it's not old enough to be charming, you know. So, uh, so that's our house. And we had some kind of strange things happening at the house not long ago, things that we thought might be really problematic, but we weren't really sure. And uh, it might be like a foundation problem, like some serious stuff, you know, stuff that you don't want to have to deal with at home. And so, uh, so I called a friend, I was talking to him about it, and uh, he very graciously offered to come over and take a look. I guess my over-the-phone description wasn't sufficient to diagnose the problem, but, uh, but he came by and he was like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, it could be one of them things, could be like foundation trouble, but let me ask somebody who, who knows a little bit more, and so this was not good news, right? You know, you want the person to be like, oh no, everything's fine, but he was not that way. So uh, he kind of got back to me and said, yeah, I talked to my friend, and blah, 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 you know, kind of explained the problem, and he said, this is a direct quote, he said, yeah, it's basically the most expensive thing you could do to your house that won't add value. I was like, and he probably said some stuff after that, but I think I blacked out for a minute. I don't remember what he said after that. But, but every time he talked to me, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. I thought, I'm going to get a restraining order against this guy. He's just bringing bad news. But, but mostly I was just praying. I thought, all right, God, if, if that's the way you want to spend your money on expensive house repair... That's your business, but I could think of a lot of other things to do with it, you know. But, uh, but anyway, so my dear friend, really good guy, came over again to kind of investigate. He was crawling around up in there and investigating to see if this was, in fact, this, this major problem was really true. And I, I almost told him not to come. Because I mean, every time he's coming, things are getting worse. I thought, what's the worst that could happen, you know. But, uh, but he came, and it turns out everything's fine. 
yeah, the, the foundation's fine, the structure of the house is fine, and it really turns out most of the problem can be solved with just like a couple of weekend projects, you know, and uh, that's how it goes, isn't it? I mean, things get worse before they get better sometimes, and, and that's very much the case with the book of Esther, that, that these problems and challenges and possible negative outcomes, they're stacking up on top of each other, and, and things keep getting worse and worse and worse, but sometimes things get worse before they get better. And as we work our way to the climax of this story, we're going we're gonna to cover a lot of different scripture today. We're not going to read it all, but I want you to have it out with you. I want you to have it because we're going to kind of walk our way through it. And so if you've got a Bible with you, you could just open it up to uh, Esther chapters 3 and 4. We're going to kind of hit uh, a bunch of little verses today. So uh, we'll work our way through these things. And, and chapter 3 starts out with this person, this person named Haman. We don't know anything about him yet. Uh, he seems to come out of nowhere. And yet uh, Haman is being honored by King Xerxes, being honored in a very big way. But uh, not everybody feels so good about Haman. If you look at verse 2, you see all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded that concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So Mordecai, of course, he's a Jew, as we've learned, and, and apparently he's the only one at the king's gate, the only Jew. Uh, everybody else is content to, to bow down and honor Haman as the king has decreed. But, uh, but this gate, this, this king's gate, it's not just a, a gate like you think about it. It's, it's more of a, a gathering place for officials, for important people, and a lot of official business kind of went on here. And, and the king himself would even sometimes come out to the little courtyard right outside the gate and make an appearance and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a real gathering place of important people in, in the kingdom, and, and that's why I think Haman wants to hang out here. You know, the king has said everybody has to honor Haman, and so you, why not hang out around a bunch of important people that are forced to honor you, right? But, uh, but Mordecai, the Jew, he won't have anything to do with it. And, and it's not really clear exactly why Mordecai won't. Uh, the Bible doesn't say specifically, but I can think of a couple of reasons why Mordecai would, would refuse to bow down. And first of all, I think... I think some of the events that have happened in this, in this story so far have, have given Mordecai a bit more boldness in living out his faith. I mean, that's just my supposition, but I think, you know, it's become pretty clear to him that God's at work. I mean, Esther kind of coming from nowhere to become the queen. I think that's made him uh, want to live out his faith with just a little bit more boldness. That's just my observation. I, don't, I could be wrong. But, but there's another clue uh, as to why that comes from the text. I want you to notice, verse 1, how Haman is introduced. It says, Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. So his, his ancestry is specifically mentioned. And now Agag, you know, doesn't probably mean that much to you and I, but to a Jew like Mordecai, it would mean quite a bit. Uh, Agag was king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites are, are enemies of the Jews from way, way back. In fact, way back in, in Exodus, the Amalekites had attacked God's people. Moses and Joshua had fought them against them and everything. And the Amalekites were defeated then, but God did something kind of interesting. He personally declared war against them. So that's pretty serious stuff. He told Moses, he said, hey, write this down. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so, sure enough, that was the case. These Amalekites, uh, throughout the history of God's people, they kept popping up and kept being defeated, uh, you know, enemies of God's people over and over again. And so now here's Mordecai, and he's supposed to bow down and pay homage to this guy whose you know, ancestors uh, are, is the enemy. And so, so he refuses. And and it's interesting, in the story of Esther, this is a moment, a moment when one person's decision 
affects everyone. You know, we, we see that as kind of a pattern in, in this story. First, we saw it with Queen Vashti in, in chapter 1. She decided not to obey the king, and it had an effect on all the women in the kingdom. And now here's Mordecai makes a decision not to bow down, and it's going to have an effect on all the Jews in the kingdom. Later, we're going to see Esther make a decision, and it has a permanent effect on all of God's people. So this, this moment with Mordecai and Haman is really just a foretaste of what's to come. So Mordecai, he makes this decision to honor God, even if it means great risk to himself. You know, he makes this, this bold and risky decision, but, but one that is honoring to God. And so later on, he's going to challenge Esther to do the same thing. And we can see, hey, he's, he's walking the walk. He's not just talking the talk, right? But, but Haman, he doesn't care about all this integrity. He just wants to be honored. He wants to, to feel important. And so he gets really mad. And he decides he's not just going to punish Mordecai, but he's going to punish all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews. And, and we see that in, uh, in verse 6. And so Haman, he gets the idea to destroy all the Jews. And he wants to do it in a way that kind of honors his, his false god. And so he, he casts lots. Okay, Lots are kind of like uh, dice, uh, only in the ancient world they weren't used for games. They were used for uh, discerning the god's will that, uh, uh, you know, kind of making decisions and stuff like that. And so... Uh, uh, so Haman casts these lots, and it turns out his plan is to destroy all the Jews. It's going to have to wait a little while. So he's in the first month of the year. You see that in verse 7. But the day that's chosen for the destruction of the Jews is not until the month of Adar, mark your calendars, uh, but that's the 12th month, okay? So, so chapter 3 ends with Haman and the king sending out a message to all these corners of the Persian Empire telling them about this plan that's going to happen you know, in several months from now. Verse 13 says, uh, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. So this does not bode well, right? Um, all because Mordecai made this decision to honor God, even though it was risky. And so, so one thing we can learn already this morning is that putting your faith in God is, is right, but it's not always easy, right? And when we make decisions to put our faith in God, sometimes things get worse before they get better. And following God, when we can't see him, it's not easy. If we, if we could see him, it'd be easy. But, uh, but faith in God, when you can't see him, it means we have confidence in him even when we can't see what the future holds. And as we get into the next chapter, chapter 4, Mordecai has, has taken this news pretty hard. Uh, he, he, you see, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and he, he throws ashes on his head. And these are all uh, kind of strange things, but they're, they're traditional ways that the Jews mourned. They, they made themselves ashen, they made themselves unclean and unkempt as a way to, to physically demonstrate their grief. And, and so Mordecai, he's showing some, some genuine grief here. He doesn't know what the future holds. And, and verse 3 says uh, a lot of the other Jews are mourning in the same way. And so when Esther gets word of this, you know, she has no idea what's going on. You remember, she's on the other side of the king's gate. She's in the palace, insulated from all this news. And so nobody even knows there that she's a Jew. Uh, so she finds out Mordecai is mourning, and she sends him some new clothes. She's totally clueless as to what's going on. And finally, she sends her personal attendant uh, to, to Mordecai, and, and verse 8 says, uh, Mordecai gave that guy, gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. 
So finally, Esther gets the news that all her people are, are living on borrowed time. And so she's got a decision to make. Does she, does she say anything? Does she stay quiet? Uh, uh, it's clear that she's torn. She wants to do the right thing, but, uh, but she's scared, and, and rightfully so, because the first thing out of her mouth when she learns this news tells us that the, the stakes for her have never been any higher. Look at uh, verse 11. All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king, she says. So, so she knows she can't just bust into the king's inner court without risking her own life. And it's clear that her relationship with Xerxes is cool because he hasn't called for her in 30 days. Who's counting? But she's got a choice to make. And a lot of times when, when we all face big decisions, we, we face life-altering circumstances, we want to surround ourselves with people who will give us good advice, right? I mean, that's normal, that's wise. Uh, we want people around us who will help us as we think through the decision. But, but really, if we're honest with ourselves, what happens so often is, is we start to tune out the people who disagree with us, right? We start to listen more to the people who just tell us what we want to hear. And the people who will, we, want, we want people around us who will say, Ah, uh, you're too good for that deadbeat. You're better off without him. Or, or people who say, hey, I don't care what all those other people say. We got your back. I mean, we want people who will just tell us what we want to hear. And we tend to downplay those people who might contradict what's in our gut, what our, what our gut instinct is telling us to do. And, and that strategy, it makes us feel good, right? We trust our gut, and then we kind of look around for people who will affirm it. But um, but our gut is not always right. Our instincts are not always right. Because uh, our, our instincts are always going to be for safety, for self-preservation. And that's not always the way to follow God. Uh, our natural inclination is going to be to look for the easy way out, what seems really clear and what seems certain. But I want you to listen to what Oswald Chambers says. He says, The nature of the spiritual life is that we are certain in our uncertainty. He says, when we abandon ourselves to God's purposes, God's be God begins to fill our lives with surprises. We're uncertain of the next step, but we're certain of God. So putting our faith in God, it doesn't mean we can see everything that might happen. That's just putting our faith in circumstances. It doesn't mean even that we're happy about the things we can see. That would be just putting our faith in our own pleasure. But putting our faith in God means we're certain of God, certain of the one who's in control, and certain of his character. He's always good, and that's why we put our trust in him. So we don't just want to surround ourselves with, with sympathetic voices that tell us what we want to hear. That makes us feel good, but it doesn't necessarily make us right. We want to put our faith in God's purpose and not just in our preservation. Following God means we, we put our faith not in certainty, not in our own preservation and safety, but we put our faith in God's purposes. You know, there's this, this lie that goes around, and it's a lie, uh, a lie that says, hey, if you follow God, he'll bless you and he'll keep you from harm. But just ask Jesus how true that is, right? I mean, Jesus followed God wholeheartedly, and, and look where it got him. It got him tortured and killed which, by the way, is exactly where he needed to be. One of the reasons we're studying this book of Esther is because Esther is a precursor to Jesus. So she has to decide if she's going to put her faith 
in her own preservation or if she's going to risk her life to save God's people. And, and her decision here really points to the greater sacrifice that Jesus made, willing to risk his life to save God's people and save our lives. And really, that's kind of the way that Mordecai lays it out for her. He's not one of these people who's just telling her what to do or telling her what she wants to hear, uh, rather. He stands up for what's right. He has very, very strong words for her. Look at verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So he clarifies for a couple of key ideas. He, first, he, he tells her God's in control. Mordecai, he has his faith in God's purposes. That's clear. His actions from the beginning, this, this wearing the sackcloth and the ashes and everything, that's a sign that he's turning to God in the midst of this distress. Uh, the Kind of the idea behind this sackcloth and ashes is uh, you're, you're repenting of your own role in the problem. So it's a sign that in some small way his own sinful choices have created the situation that they find themselves in now in the first place. And so, so he's using this traditional way to really turn to God and, and put his faith in God in the midst of this mourning. And, and he also tells Esther, he says that God's purposes are not going to be thwarted. One way or another, God's going to accomplish what he wants. He can use Esther or he can use some other means, but God is in control. And so another thing that, that Mordecai clarifies for her is that this is Esther's purpose, that God wants her in this position, in this place, for this purpose. God's worked all the circumstances of her life to get her to this point, being orphaned, being adopted by Mordecai, living in Persia, being pretty, uh, winning the favor of the king. It all fits together, and now she's got this purpose, the power to affect the whole world if she puts her faith in God's purpose for her. And so, so notice her response in verse 16. She says, go, Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she makes her decision. She puts her faith in God's purposes. I want us to notice three very brief things about her decision. The first one, this is important. She makes the decision right here before she fasts, right? That's... Uh, we'll talk more about that later, but I want you to notice that. She decides, and then she decides she's going to fast after that. So secondly, she's seeking the support of her community. She wants all the Jews to turn to God on her behalf. She's not just surrounding herself with people who will tell her what she wants to hear. She's aligning herself with God, and she wants all these other people to do the same. Now, the third thing is, is really not so obvious, but I think it's really important, especially as we are learning to put our faith in God's purposes. There's sort of a... Uh, code language going on here between Esther and Mordecai. Um, you know, he tells her, who knows, but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. And then she responds by calling these, the Jews to fast, meaning they're not going to eat anything for, for three days. And as I said, it's not very obvious, but Esther and Mordecai, they're not just making all this stuff up, okay? Their words here are actually very, very similar to some other words that come from the Bible. Then the, the prophet Joel, he wrote to God's people or wrote about God's judgment. And actually, the way he describes it, some really, really bad stuff was happening, very similar to what's happening here. Total destruction for the Jews, uh, just like they're facing here in Esther's time. And yet, and that the prophet Joel, he left people with some hope. I want you to look at these words up here uh, from Joel chapter 2. 
Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not just your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Okay, now, it's not very obvious in English. It's a lot clearer if you're smart and know more Hebrew than I do, but... uh, but this whole chapter of, of Esther 4, it really references uh, a lot of the stuff in this passage. In fact, the phrase uh, fasting and weeping and mourning, that's the exact phrase in Esther 4, verse 3. And here in Joel, God tells people to rend their hearts, not just their garments. You know, we see Mordecai and other people doing that. And, and, uh, and Mordecai, when he tells Esther, who knows, that's kind of another echo of Joel in that. And so, so Esther's plan to gather all the Jews together and have them fast It's not just her idea, because the very next verse of Joel 2, it says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people. So see, Esther and Mordecai, they're putting their faith in God's purpose, and the way they're doing that is by looking to God's word. Up to this point, you know, Esther's been a very passive participant in this, this book that's named after her, but, but now she's encouraged by God's word, and she becomes a very active participant, even willing to risk her life to fulfill God's purpose. She's looking to God's word, and then she's taking action. So this, this climactic moment in the book of Esther it has a lot to teach us about putting our faith in God's purposes and not just in our preservation. So let's talk about what it looks like for us to put our faith. I see really three big ways that this plays out. And the first, putting our faith in God's purposes is not just our preservation. It means we look to God's word for guidance, just like Esther is doing. I mean, all of us, we want to surround ourselves with voices that, that think like we do. But if we want to put our faith in God's purposes, we need to surround ourselves with God's voice, too. Uh, just like Esther's actions are taken straight from God's word. You know, she doesn't know what the future holds, but she takes her next step straight from God's word. And we too should be willing to act for God's purposes using his word. I mean, God, God uses the Bible. He uses his word to communicate to us. If we're not engaged in God's word, then we're not going to have any chance really to know how to respond in difficult circumstances. So the second way that we can put our faith in God's purposes is, is just anticipating God's will in each decision. You know, not every decision that we make is as clear-cut as Esther's, and in her case, she knew, she knew what was right uh, from the beginning. Now, she could have chosen to stay quiet, she could have chosen to stay safe, and, and, uh, you know, but she would have known that was the wrong choice. She would know that wasn't right. And sometimes, you know, we don't do what's right, even when we know what's right, but but not every decision is this clear-cut, really. I mean, sometimes it's not easy to discern what's the right choice for us. Should I take this job or this job? Should I marry this person or not? You know, and um, we can anticipate God, though, when we can anticipate God's purposes. That's helpful, and, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. I want to share five just brief um, uh, factors that I've found in, in helping make decisions. And you can see there's space on your notes for these if you want to write them down. But uh, the first one is just circumstances, just the, where God has you. And, you know, circumstances, that's one factor that God uses to either open the door or, or close the door to opportunities. So we see that here in Esther. God put Esther in a very unique set of circumstances to have access to the king on behalf of her people. She had something very clear that she could do. 
But circumstances alone, they don't, they don't mean necessarily that God is there. You know, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he saw circumstances open up for him to go and, and share the gospel in Asia, and then, and then God blocked him from doing that. So, so circumstances, they can open doors, but that's not the only factor we want to take into consideration. There's, there's others too. And then the second one is, is common sense. Uh, God's given each of us some common sense. Some more than others, but, uh, uh, but that is not to be overlooked, really. Uh, I think that we, we downplay common sense sometimes when we're trying to understand what God wants. But, you know, when you're faced with a decision, think carefully about the pros and the cons. I mean, God's given us the ability to make decisions, and we shouldn't overlook our, our reason and common sense. And that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, God always goes with common sense, but I think, I think it's worth considering. Sometimes I think people erroneously think, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait for God to tell me what to do, when uh, in reality, God uses our own thinking, our own common sense to guide us. So common sense circumstances. A third factor in making decisions is just wise counsel. We've talked about this a little bit already, but, but over and over, the Bible says to seek wise counsel. Uh, whether it's a financial decision, a spiritual decision, whatever, God puts people in our lives that, uh, uh, that we can make use of. We can make use of those people. Like we said, our temptation is always to gravitate towards the ones who, who already agree with us, but uh, we want to be careful to really balance that with some wise counsel that might be a little Harder for us to hear. That's important. A uh, fourth factor in decision making, kind of easy to overlook, but it's just our, our personal desire. What do you want? Uh, we tend to think of, of God's will as a, as a dot, the center of a target. And uh, if we're off the bullseye, then we're not in God's will. But I think in most cases, I don't think it's as complicated as that. I think, uh, uh, for one, I think God gives all of us personal desires, uh, desires that, that generally line up with our abilities and our gifts. And, um, you know, for example, the Apostle Paul, he says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Well, that ambition of his was God's purpose for him. They, they line up. And, and uh, sometimes God works his purposes through our own desires. And I think that's important to consider. Uh, now, our own desires, they can be skewed by sin, by our own sinful nature. We can start to be selfish and everything. But they are one factor in the midst of these that we want to consider in seeking God's purposes. Let me, uh, let me give you another example of this um, <clears throat> Uh, I was at a church several years ago. I was at a church, and there was a guy there who had kind of a unique ability for making money. I mean, wouldn't you like to be that guy, right? But, uh, but he just uh, he had a string of successful investments, handled his money really well, and he really enjoyed doing it. Enjoyed uh, making money, and he was good at it. It was it was a desire of his. But he came to understand that it was also God's purpose for him, that, he, that that was a way that, that he could uh, serve the church and serve God is through making money and then turning around and using it for God's purposes. And so uh, he became a pretty generous person using his own personal desire to fulfill God's purpose for him. And, uh, you know, very often that's how it works. It's, it's rare that God calls us to do something that's so far out of our own abilities and interests. More often, God uses the things we are gravitating towards in order to, to serve his purposes in us. And so, so you don't want to give full weight to your personal desires. You know, you don't want to, those to rule the day, but you want to consider them when you're making decisions. Uh, uh, one more factor in making decisions, we see it right here in Esther, and it's probably the most important, but it's just dependence on God, dependence on God. It's really easy to kind of use all these other things and leave God out of our decisions, but if we want to be pursuing God's purposes, 
then we have to be willing to submit ourselves to him, to his leadership. And you know, as we mentioned a bit ago, looking to God's word for guidance, that becomes critical. But then you know, the trick is you have to live in a way that aligns yourself with what God reveals. If we look to God's word for guidance only in tough decisions and not all the rest of the time, then, then it's going to be really hard for us to, to live out God's purposes. We have to live in a way that's continually dependent on God, and then it becomes a lot easier to discern God's will because we're constantly in the habit of submitting ourselves to him already. So we make our plans, but we leave room for God to change those plans because we're continually seeking him and shaping our lives around him. So, so these factors, they're, they're a helpful guide, I think, in making decisions that, that honor God. And as we, we put our faith in God, we're looking to God's word for guidance, we're anticipating God's will and decision-making. Uh, those are th- ways that we can put our faith in God's purposes. And, and there's a third way, you see it on your notes, uh, laying down our own rights. Uh, we see Esther model this in, in actually two different ways. First, she could very easily have insulated herself from this problem. She's already done a very good job of hiding her identity as a Jew for a long, long time now. She could have called on her right as the queen to be really distanced from this problem, but, but she doesn't do that. She lays down that right in order to follow God, no matter how risky it is, no matter the cost. She doesn't know what's going to happen, but she's willing to lay down her very right to life. She says, if I perish, I perish. There's a second way she models this laying down her rights and just calling for this fast, this three-day fast. I mean, some of us, we can imagine going three hours without a snack, you know, but three days, that's, that's incomprehensible. But Esther, she lays down her rights as she seeks to follow God. I mean, she's entitled to eat, right? We all are, but she willingly puts that aside in order to turn her focus to God. And, and you know, fasting is a really good way to do that throughout history, God's people have used fasting as a way to uh, draw closer to God. Jesus himself did it, and in fact, uh, he expects us to do it. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you fast, not if, but when you fast, and then he goes on to give instructions for how to do it, right? Now, there's a lot of confusion about fasting in the world out there. I think sometimes people think if you fast, then God is bound to do whatever it is that you want him to do. You know, like, well, God, I didn't eat that Twinkie, so now you've got to answer all my questions and reveal the future to me. Well, it doesn't work like that, you know. But, but the, the purpose of fasting is, uh, you know, fasting, denying ourselves of food or, or other things. It's, it's an, a way to reaffirm our dependence on God. You know, I was talking to Sharon Gordon, our children's ministry director, the other day, and she said something really true, really, really profound and true. She said, you know, we think that, that gathering stuff, gathering things is going to bring us satisfaction, but really it just leaves us feeling more empty. And I think she's absolutely right. Uh, our culture screams this message of more, 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 and have it your way. Uh, and fasting really becomes an antidote to that. Uh, it's a way for us to lay down our rights, uh, putting our faith in God and his purposes instead, and not just in our own preservation, our own selfish desires. You know, we're basically saying, hey, instead of me taking care of all my needs, I'm going to turn to you, God, and let you be the nourishment that I need. 
You know, we use the time that you would normally use to prepare and to eat food in order to really turn to God in, in prayer and, and, and studying His Word, those sorts of things. And so, so it's not that we fast in order to get an answer from God, so often people think. I mean, that happens sometimes, but, but we fast as a way of really laying down our rights. We're saying we're willing to follow God even if it costs us something. So if you've never fasted, uh, I'd encourage you to try it. I'd encourage you to do it. It's a very tangible way of, of uh, putting your faith in God's purposes. And there's a lot of different ways you can fast. Obviously, food is kind of a traditional way, but it's not the only way. Um, but the only thing I'll say is when you fast, you want to fast from something that's valuable or important to you. Uh, you know, that's why food is such a common item. It's critical for all of us. But fasting, it could be anything. It could be, uh, you know, uh, anything really that prevents you from putting your faith in God, something that kind of stands in the way of that, something you're, you're trying to fill that blank in with. And at the end of the day, it's between you and God, and, and God will honor your efforts to, to fast one way or another. Uh, one other bit of advice I'll give if, you, if you're thinking about fasting is you, you need a plan for what you're going to do in the time that you fast, you know, because uh, if you don't plan some kind of concentrated prayer time or some specific time in God's Word, then you're just going to sit around thinking about what you could be eating, you know, uh, and that's not helpful. If, you, if all you do is not eat and then think about food, that's really just dieting. It's not fasting. So, yeah, you have to fast and Turn your attention to God. That's, that's what's key. So, so putting our faith in God's purpose in these three ways, it's not easy. Uh, but if we can look to God's word for guidance, if we can uh, anticipate God's will and making careful decisions, uh, remember to take into account those five factors we talk about. If we can do that, and if we're willing to genuinely lay down our rights, then we'll be pursuing God's will. We'll be pursuing God's purposes. God's going to change us in the process of that to align our hearts with His. And so I want us, uh, as we close, I want us to just close our eyes, and I'm going to give each of us a little bit of time to think through some of these things. And uh, uh, thinking through these big three ways to put our faith in God's purpose, and there's a lot of different things we've talked about, but, but maybe there's just one of these things that kind of bubbles to the top for you. Uh, maybe there's one that, that God would have you do. Maybe, uh, maybe for you, you're facing a big decision, or maybe you're uh, a person who can provide some wise counsel to another person facing a decision. Maybe you need to prioritize a certain relationship and help a person out. I mean, maybe if you're one facing decision, thinking through these factors, you know, just uh, focus in on one of them. You don't have to tackle all five at once, but just think about maybe one action that you can start this week that's going to help you put your faith in God's purposes. Uh, maybe for you, maybe fasting is the right thing at this time. Maybe you just need to, to really reaffirm your dependence on God in a certain way. And uh, just drill down on one of these things, and um, maybe you'll be that person who will tell hard truth to somebody, or maybe you need a person who can come and tell you hard truth. I'll think about all these things. I'm going to give you a moment to think about that, and then we'll pray together. God, we, uh, we praise you for being a God who is both wise and good and in control of things. We know that uh, uh, we need you. We know that on our own, we would just look to our own interests and not look to the interests of others. We know that we would just look to 
what's going to keep us safe, what's going to help us feel good. And we don't want to live like that. We want to live in a way that honors you, in a way that points people to you. And we know that means uh, not just faith in our own preservation, not just faith in, in keeping ourselves safe, but faith in your purposes, wherever that leads. Just like Esther, we want to be willing to, to lay it all on the line. And uh, you've given us the uh, strength to do that, the ability to do that, because you've given us your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit that guides us. I pray that you would use your word and use your spirit to uh, just speak to each of us about uh, the ways that we can make decisions in our lives that honor you, Lord. Uh, We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chris. You know, as, uh, as hard as it's been to not have Pastor Brad here, it's been good to hear from different voices. And uh, Pastor Chris, thank you for what you've been bringing. We're really honored to have you here and, and blessed by your ministry. Hey, in a minute, we're going to...